We're in a, a series that we're wrapping up today and next week. It's kind of a two-week wrap-up, as, as it were. Uh, the fourth part, uh, the fourth installment is what we're working on today. If you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to, to John chapter 16, kind of put your pinky there, that's where we're going to be. Um, if you have a bulletin, inside the bulletin is an insert, and that'll kind of help you follow along um, where, where we're going to be working from and what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, today's the fourth week that we've been looking at the excruciating life of the Christian, not very attractive name for a series, so why use the word excruciating? It's because the reality of it is, is that every Christian is born out of the cross, and, and that's literally with that word excruciating, you and I have probably used that word an awful lot in our lifetime. You, when we have some kind of a, a pain that's really, really severe, we use the word excruciating. And the word excruciating means out, born out of the cross. Every Christian is born out of the cross. In essence, we've been looking at God's great plan of salvation, the necessary components particularly the necessary components from God's point of view of what is necessary for our salvation experience to be complete, for it to be full. If we, if we did not experience the four components that we're talking about through this series um, in our salvation experience, and if God did not use those four components to accomplish salvation, we wouldn't have salvation. Let me kind of just real quickly review them. So the four fundamental components to God's plan of salvation. Uh, we started uh, several weeks back with looking at the cross. Remember, we were getting ready to enter into Good Friday, and we talked about how the cross be becomes the, the focal point and the center point, and that everything starts from there. Without the cross, without Christ's suffering, and by the way, that excruciating suffering that Jesus experienced was necessary it was necessary justice for you and I to experience the salvation that you and I are able to enjoy. Then we went from there to the second component of salvation. The second component of salvation we talked about on Easter Sunday, or you might remember the other name, the biblical name for Easter is first fruits. That's because Jesus was our first fruits. He was the first of many. And we're going to be talking once again today about first fruits because on first fruits, on the day of the resurrection, it started a whole new Jewish festival. And the culmination of what we're talking about today was the end of that Jewish festival. And so you can see that according to God's calendar and according to God's design and plan for salvation, he operated according to how he had already prophesied and foretold in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy and also in the book of Exodus. God had worked out the plan of salvation thousands of years before it ever took place. In fact, he, he worked out the plan of salvation before he even created the world. And you might say, well, how is that? That's because God foreknew that you and I would fall into sin. We, he foreknew, he saw ahead of time that Adam and Eve would sin in the garden, that he would need to come down to earth and take care of business himself. And he did that in the form of Jesus Christ. That was the cross, the resurrection. Last week we talked about the third component, the necessary component of the ascension. Oftentimes, oftentimes in our Christian thinking, we, we kind of get pigeonholed for whatever reason 
to thinking that salvation is really about the cross and the resurrection. And that's true, absolutely true. But there's also Paul Harvey's rest of the story. There is the ascension, which was necessary for you and I to experience salvation in that way. Why? Because last week we talked about it wasn't just so that Elvis could leave the building. It was done in order that Jesus would return to the right hand of the Father in heaven so that he would be able to send the comforter and so that he would, as the book of Hebrews and other places in the New Testament tell us and also foretold in the Old Testament, so that he will be our mediator between us and God. That's why when you and I pray, whose name do we typically pray in? We pray in the name of Jesus. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Because he is our mediator. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf before God the Father in heaven. That's why, by the way, there is no longer any need on this earth to have a priest. That priestly role is done away with. Jesus is our high priest, and he will always be our high priest. And then, the final bookend of this plan and design of salvation is is a date that, and, and, a, and a name and an event, a celebration that I think is oftentimes misunderstood. There is Pentecost. So you have the cross, you have the resurrection, you have the ascension, you have Pentecost. All four of those uh, events, all four of those experiences are necessary components and, and my guess would be is that all of, out of those uh, four different components of God's plan of salvation, my guess would be is Pentecost is probably the one that's most misunderstood. I, I mean, with the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, those are pretty clear things. But when it comes to Pentecost, I think that that's where it gets a little fuzzy for many Christians because there's been some things that have been twisted about Pentecost, and that's why you even have some of these Pentecostal or charismatic traditions. And today, I want to kind of simplify and make sense of what Pentecost is and what it was. So, I want to ask two simple questions today to try to make sense of this is, what is Pentecost, first of all, and why is Pentecost necessary for our salvation. So what is Pentecost? And why is Pentecost an absolutely necessary component for our salvation that if you were to take that out of the Christian history, if you were to take that out of God's design, you and I would not be Christians today. You're saying, well, those are awfully big words. Well, let me kind of show you a few things today. First off, let's begin with the simple question, what is Pentecost? You, you know, I think I think a lot of, uh, of Christians associate or at least think that Pente the first Pentecost that ever took place was that one that was recorded in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to get there to Acts chapter 2 a little bit later today, but that was a Pentecost that had been taking place just like all other Pentecosts for over a thousand years. It was, it was already ordained and part of God's calendar laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. 
by the time the Pentecost that's mentioned in, in Acts chapter 2, uh, the celebration that we call Pentecost had been taking place for easily over a thousand years. So what is it? Here it simply said, Pentecost is the Greek name that's given to the celebration at the culmination of the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost is the Greek name that's given to the celebration that is at the culmination of this Jewish festival that's called the Feast of Weeks. Now, when you and I think about this time of year, you know, we might think about, if we're thinking Jewish, we might think about Passover, we might think about uh, Feast of Unleavened Breads, we might even think about uh, First Fruits. But one that's lost in there is the Feast of Weeks. By the way, all of these are laid out, and I I call it God's calendar, in Leviticus chapter 23. You can easily go back, and you can look at how God has has laid this plan out clearly in your scriptures, and you can easily see God working according to the dates that he had already ordained that he would work on. And, And to define Pentecost, before we can even begin to define Pentecost, we need to define the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks began, the first day of the Feast of Weeks began on first fruits. What do you and I call first fruits today? We talked about this a couple weeks back. We call it Easter. The, the biblical name or the Jewish name that is given to it, the one that God chooses to call it, the one that the apostles choose to refer to the resurrection of Jesus uh, as, is they call it first fruits. The day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, here's what happened. There was uh, a, um, just the barley was beginning to ripen, okay? So you first you had the barley and then the wheat, Okay, the, those two, those two uh, crops would be growing consecutively. And so a couple days before first fruits, they would go and they would harvest the, the first fruits of the barley. And they would tie it together in a sheaf. Do you remember we talked about this on, on Easter Sunday? They would tie it together in a sheaf, and then very early in the morning, while it was still dark, a little boy would go, and he would bring that she- take that sheaf that they had harvested, and they would take it to the high priest, and the high priest would do a wave offering over the, the, the gathered people. And in essence, what the high priest would say is this seed that uh, was dead, and came, if this seed was dead, and came back to life, so will all the rest. That's why they call that day first fruits. That's why Jesus, he was dead and then came back to life. He, he was the first fruits of the rest of us. Well, that, that, uh, that day initiated a seven-week-long festival, and that was called the Feast of Weeks. And during this seven times seven or 49 days, what would happen is that the barley would ripen and they would harvest it. The wheat would ripen and they would harvest that as well. And so basically, the Feast of Weeks was all about the harvest. Isn't it funny too? Do you notice the connection? That Jesus' resurrection is all about what? The harvest. 
Jesus' resurrection is, is, the, is about him being the first and us, the rest, being the rest of the harvest. And do you get to see the picture here of what God is doing? Excuse me. <clears throat> For the next seven weeks, barley and wheat, they would ripen, they would be harvested. And then on, on the day that followed the end of the seven sevens, 49 days, 49 plus one is 50. Pentecost, penta means 50. On the 50th day, they were to have a Sabbath no matter what day of the week that it fell on, right? The Jewish Sabbath is on what day? Saturday, right? Always been Saturday. The Sabbath has always been Saturday, always will be Saturday. But then you have these special Sabbaths. So no matter what day of the week that this, that this Sabbath fell on, it was to be a Sabbath. There was to be no work. Rather, they were to have a great celebration, they were to celebrate the good things that God had, had given to them and even anticipate the better things that were yet to come. That is to say, the rest of all the crops, all the amazing things that were, were yet to come. So Pentecost has two meanings in the Bible. Pentecost, the first meaning is this. It's a harvest festival. That's what, that's what Pentecost for thousands of years represented in the scriptures. It was a harvest festival. And, and, and the Jewish people knew, in fact, it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that they were to head up to Jerusalem for. Every able-bodied male uh, within a particular age range was to head up to Jerusalem for Pentecost so that they could celebrate together what God had done. The first thing is, it's a harvest festival. Here's the second thing. The second thing is, is it commemorates the giving of the law on Sinai. God's redemptive law, which you and I know as what? The Mosaic law, or Ten Commandments and then some. Some believe that there were 613 laws that were given on Sinai. Knowing all this stuff, let me paint you. God has painted this redemptive picture, not just in the New Testament, but he's already painted it in the Old Testament. And he's foreshadowed what he was going to do and how he was going to redeem people through stories in the Old Testament. Let me kind of paint it for you in an Old Testament picture. God hears the cries of the Israelites who were in bondage in Egypt, right, for, for hundreds of years, that was after the death of Joseph and about uh, 200 and some years later, there comes a, a Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph anymore. And for hundreds of years, the, the Jews are in bondage. The Israelites are in bondage in, in Egypt, right? And they're crying out to God, save us, save us, save us, deliver us. And you know what God does? He sends them a deliverer. What was his name? His name was Moses. And then over a series of plagues that took many months, there was the 10th plague. And this 10th plague was what? Do you remember what the 10th plague was? It was the death of the firstborn of all the people who had not obeyed God because God had issued a specific command. And that specific command was, you are to sacrifice a pure, spotless lamb. And by the way, the way, the way that they sacrificed him, the way that they skewered him was in the image of a cross. 
another foreshadowing of the cross that was yet to come in the New Testament. And what you were to do with the blood of that spot, pure spotless lamb is you were to paint it on the, the doorposts around your house. So that when this, when this angel of death, as it were, came through the area, that he would pass over your home. This is where we get the, the festival or the remembrance of Passover. The angels literally passing over. Death is, has, has no hold over the family that is covered by the blood of the lamb. Right? God delivers them out of Egypt Forty days later, and to be more specific, 50 days later, the Israelites are gathered around Mount Sinai, and they're, they're seeking this God who has delivered them out of Egypt, and he begins to speak, and he gives them the Mosaic law, 50 days after the deliverance. That's Pentecost. Pentecost is a harvest festival, and it also commemorates God giving spiritual liberation. God gave physical liberation for the Israelites, and then he gave spiritual liberation for the Israelites. That's the crucial component in the understanding of Pentecost that we need to have ourselves armed with to be able to understand why this stuff is important. So know that it's a harvest festival. It's been going on for well over a thousand years and know that it represents the giving of the law, okay? Now we come to a couple statements from, a statement from Jesus and then also a record from uh, the physician Luke out of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Let me show you the first one. Here we go. We're going to get into the first text that I mentioned, which is John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. We looked at this, last, this passage last week. We need to look at it again. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper or the paraclete, the comforter, will not come, uh, he will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, and judgment. Those three crucial components. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Notice there, does he say he will convict the, the believer, the one who believes in my name? No, he says he will convict the world, the people who yet don't even know me. It will be the Sp Holy Spirit's job to convict those people of the sin that they're in, the righteousness that I possess, and the coming judgment. That's why they need to turn and repent. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He'll speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, and he's going to declare it to you. Now listen, before we lose that thought, let's go to a passage in Acts. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. This is typically what people think about when they think of Pentecost. They think of this particular passage. And this is a very fair passage to think of, but you need to have the, the background of Pentecost to be able to even understand this passage properly. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, what's the day of Pentecost? It's just a harvest festival. It's, it's a celebration, thanking God for all the things that he had done with the beginnings of the harvest, and also to thank God for the precious giving of the law and the, the spiritual liberation that God had provided for them when he had brought them out of Egypt. So they're all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Some of us were in what we call the upper room. We were just there um, a, a couple months ago. This is believed to be the place to where this happened at. And, uh, and it filled the places where they were, they, they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here's, here's where it's unfortunate that this passage has been twisted and, and turned to mean things that it, it it wasn't ever really intended to mean or intended to reveal. There's some, there's some people who say, see, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will speak in tongues. And if you have not spoken in tongues, you have never received the Holy Spirit. That's not true at all. It's that God was doing something new. What he had actually uh, began at the Tower of Babel, what did God do at the Tower of Babel? He separated the languages he divided the languages. Why? To accomplish his purpose because he had commanded the people to go and to, fulfill, to fill the whole entire earth and they hadn't. What he did at the Tower of Babel, God in some sense reverses here at the day of Pentecost. And why does he do it? Because there are people who are gathered from all over the known world they're here in Jerusalem, and God wants to equip them to be able to speak in their own language so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in their own language. And God does this supernaturally, giving them utterance of known languages so that they could speak it and that they could teach the gospel to people who were gathered everywhere. In fact, that's the picture that we see here that Luke records. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why? They were there for the, the festival of Pentecost. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were all bewildered because each one was hearing them speak his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? These are common people. How in the world do they know all these languages? 
And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue? Well, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytized Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You got to see that. We hear them telling us, in our own language, the mighty works of God. You you see, here's where where some traditions are saying, well, you need to speak in tongues, and what you do in tongues is it just kind of edifies you, and it's designed specifically for you. That's not what you ever see in in the scriptures regarding this issue of tongues. The issue of tongues, every time that you see it in the scriptures, is always to communicate the gospel, to communicate to somebody in a known language. That's why it exactly says here, tongues, uh, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, and they were just saying, well, they're filled with too much new wine. They're drunk. You see, what God is doing here is He is sending the promised Holy Spirit. And He does it on the celebration of a harvest festival. Why? Do you remember Jesus saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few? The harvest is is out there, but we need people to regularly declare the works of God to people and do it in a way that is familiar to them, in their own tongue, in fact. You know, because if we really wanted to divide this down, there's actually four different times that you'll go through the, uh, the book of Acts and you'll see Pentecost, as it were, happening four times. Remember in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus gives them this commission, and he says, listen, I'm with you always, even till the ends of the age. You'll be my witnesses in, do you remember the, the pattern? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Let me tell you how the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is first given here at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, And it creates the church. This is the birth of the church. And it's given to Jews only. That's why it even says Jews from all over the known world. It doesn't say Gentiles. The Holy Spirit comes upon those people in the upper room. And then then you'll record a little bit later in Acts, you'll come across a passage to where they're in Judea. And the Holy Spirit's given once again. And then you'll come a passage just a little bit later that they're ministering to Samaritans. And guess what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon just like this to the Samaritans. And then they're outside of Israel. A little bit later in the books of Acts, and people haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit like received here in Acts chapter 2. And then the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. We were at one of those places a couple months ago where Cornelius, it happened in his own household in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, to where the Holy Spirit came down upon a Gentile. 
it filled, fulfilled what Jesus had already prophesied. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, Judea second, Samaria third, and then, uh, and then to the ends of the earth. By the way, that last one, the ends of the earth, the Gentiles, if that part wasn't a part of the, God's plan, guess what? You and I wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. You and I would not have that deposit, that sign in the seal of the Holy Spirit. So let me kind of break a few things down. Let me help make a, a little bit of sense of this. So it's a harvest festival. It's revealing that the, the harvest is out there, that we need to participate in it. It's revealing that all these things are happening. God has worked according to bookends, really uh, that, that uh, feast of weeks that began and was initiated on first fruits at the end of it. Jesus had to already be back into heaven because if he wasn't back into heaven, he couldn't send the Holy Spirit down on Pentecost according to God's plan. So what would have happened if Pentecost in this way wouldn't have happened? If Pentecost was not a, a component of God's salvation for us, where would we be? Where would it leave us? Well, here we go. The first thing is, very simply, there would be no giving of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus, as, as uh, recorded in John chapter 16, would have just stuck around to almost prove to everybody, see, I told you so, it would have yet... Not, he wouldn't have been able to send the Holy Spirit. And if he wouldn't have been able to send the Holy Spirit, it, the scriptures wouldn't have been fulfilled. And if the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come, then you and I would have never been born into Jesus Christ. And there would be no church. There would be no hope. We needed Pentecost to happen. That's why the Holy Spirit is given to us as a sign and a seal, a deposit of the salvation that we're going to inherit fully and eternally. Second thing, if there was no Pentecost, there wouldn't be any church. You and I would not be here this morning. We'd have no reason to be here this morning. Sure, Jesus died. Sure, he was resurrected. And sure, he ascended. But if the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us, there would be no church. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came down and Peter preached and thousands came to know Jesus as a result of what the Holy Spirit did. If there was no Pentecost, there would be no church. Here we go. If, if there was no Pentecost, there would be no spiritual gifts. We say, well, what are you talking about? According to the Scriptures... Uh, several places throughout the New Testament, we read about these things that are called the spiritual gifts. And the spiritual gifts are gifts given to each believer, each genuine believer, in order to contribute to the body of Christ so that they could spiritually build up, unite, and tie together the body of Jesus for his great glory. So if you and I are not using the gifts that God has given to us in such a way that we contribute to the body of Jesus, that is to say the church, then you and I are not using what the Holy Spirit has been intended to be used for in our own lives. There would be no spiritual gifts if there was no Pentecost. By the way, also would mean that 
Jesus wasn't who he said he was because he said that he was going to go away and that he was going to send somebody, so it would mean that the scriptures would be left unfulfilled. It would mean that Jesus would be a liar or a lunatic. It would mean that the prophecies of the Old Testament would be left unfulfilled. And if they were unfulfilled, then why are you and I trusting them? If there was no Pentecost, uh, then we don't have to trust the Scriptures. Next, Christians would have no way to effectively understand the Scriptures According to the Bible, there is God living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when He comes and dwells within us, He is our helper, as Jesus prophesied. He is our comforter, as Jesus prophesied. And and He helps us when we read these words that can at times seem to make no sense, He helps us understand them. Here's the trick to this. You got to read it. You got to read the Bible. If, if the God has given you the Holy Spirit, that is to say, if you're saved, you have the deposit, the, the, the initial deposit of the Holy Spirit living in you so that when you read the Bible, you can understand what it is saying. We've just talked through, uh, I'm, I'm leading a class, it's a third year um, grow study, which we'll be teaching in the fall, actually in a smaller version of how to understand your Bible. So I read my Bible, how do I understand my Bible? First off, you got to read it. Secondly, you got to pray through it because the, the reality of it is, is that if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches you all truth. But you got to read it. And by the way, that just doesn't mean reading a verse or two or three. You got to read all of it because God wants you to know who He is and what he's about. Here, here's the last thing that I can easily think of, and there's probably many more that we could draw on for a long time this morning and talk about the implications of what would happen if there was no Pentecost, but the last thing is the unbeliever would be unable to be drawn to God. Do, do you know that you don't choose God? God chooses you and woos you and draws you to him. You can reject him, but he draws you to him. Who, what is that work? Who is that that does that? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what, right? What, what did it say? He convicts of sin, teaches righteousness, Right? It teaches about judgment. Who does that? That's not Jesus' job. That's not God the Father's job. According to the Scripture, the, the tr- part of the Trinity who does that is the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was not sent, we're in all kinds of trouble. 
Because those promises that Jesus said that these are the roles and the function of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to teach of righteousness, and to, to reveal a coming judgment, if the Holy Spirit didn't come, we wouldn't receive any of those kinds of things. But as it were, as it is, you and I, when we sin, we're convicted of our sin if we're a Christ follower, right? We're commended to righteousness because we know that we are a vessel of righteousness, that we're to be saints of God. And also the impending judgment of not repenting. That comes to us because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as we experience Him now, is only a smidget. It's... The Holy Spirit marks us for God and has sealed us, according to the Scriptures, that we are now God's, that we're atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're covered, that we're sanctified and justified and all the other affides, and that we're now ready to enter into, into heaven for God's glory. But that Holy Spirit experience right now is only a taste only a foretaste of what experiencing God will be like for all eternity. That's why he's just the deposit. He's just the down payment. And the experience that you and I experience of, uh, of the Holy Spirit currently is only a taste of what experiencing God will look like for all of eternity. Simply said, without Pentecost, you and I wouldn't be here. Pentecost is the culmination, it's, it's the end of God's redemptive plan. From God's viewpoint, there were four necessary components, four necessary pieces of work that needed to be accomplished by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You needed to have the cross, you needed to have the, the cross, which by the way was God the Son. You needed to have the resurrection, which was done by God the Father, right? Because it was by the power of God the Father that Jesus Christ was, was resurrected. You needed to have the ascension, which was both God the Son and God the Father. And you needed to have Pentecost, which was God the Holy Spirit. All four of those are necessary components for you and I to experience salvation. Take one away all of them crumble. Let me wrap this up and kind of put it together for you. A couple take-home thoughts. Without Pentecost, you and I would be orphaned. We'd be left alone. Jesus says, listen, I'm not leaving you alone as orphans. I'm going to send you the comforter. But if Pentecost never happened, then you and I would be orphans. Because Jesus would be loving us and God would show the glorification, the exaltation of Jesus and then we're just left here saying, boy, that was a great act. But where's the benefit for us? Without Pentecost, we'd be orphaned. Because of Pentecost, Christians people who choose to follow God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, as the Bible says, 
we're marked for God. We, we, are, we receive a spiritual mark upon us. It's a seal. And that's the seal of the Holy Spirit that we're, we're destined for heaven. And because of Pentecost, we get to take part as being marked for God. We get to take part in the church. Because of Pentecost, lastly, Christians will receive the full deposit of God's salvation. The full deposit is the Holy Spirit, but that's only the down payment. The best is yet to come. And and for some of us, that's just such a big idea. This world, it's got all kinds of pain and problems and challenges, doesn't it? I mean, all you need to do is spend five minutes out in the world and you can see how filled full of sin, filled full of anger, filled full of pain, all kinds of bad things are in this world. You and I are not designed for this world. Do you hear that? You and I are not designed for this world. This world is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. We're just walking through. The best is yet to come. We're we're trying to get through as best as we possibly can. But through God and with God, according to the Scriptures, all things are possible. You and I will make it through. You and I will make it through no matter what the challenges that we experience. And there are brighter days coming, not because, not because of how good we are, but because of how glorious and great God's salvation and His plan for salvation always has been. You know, I just love this thinking about our salvation. Do, do you know that God, when He created the world, knew that you and I would be in the predicament that we're in. He knew that he would have to come down to earth in the, in the form of Jesus Christ, and he would have to take care of this sin problem all himself. And yet he still created us. He knew how messed up he, we would be, but yet he still created us. And he's been loving us, and all the scriptures are a redemptive story about Jesus working out that plan of salvation to draw us back to God so that we might live in Him, so that we might enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. Listen, our life is not about us. That might come as a surprise. Our life is not about us. The choices that we make, the, the, the actions that we take, the things that we say are to draw greater glory to God. So think about that this week when you experience different things. And there will be things that you want to act in a very non-Christian way at times. That's the carnal nature coming up. You could sometimes feel it up, just bubbling up, and you just got to push it back down. And you got to act and live in a way that glorifies God. Why? Because He loves you. And He 
He made salvation for you in a great way. Listen, next week, I want to talk about the implications of all this stuff. And then, I don't want to leave us there at the end of the series. We're going to head into a new series. We're going to talk about, so this thing that God produced, this great salvation, it leads to a message, and this message is called, what would he call this message? We call it the gospel. And I want to talk about what is the gospel? Because I, I think there, there's times that we as Christians, we just flat out don't have a clear grasp and understanding of what the gospel is. But it's to be the most precious thing to us. So join us again next week. Let's talk about what does all this mean when the rubber hits the road. What does all this mean? And then follow up with discovering what the gospel is all about. Hey, let me pray for you, and let me invite the worship team to, to head back up at this time.